from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, We started last week a sermon series called United with Christ. And our goal in that, in this series through the summer is to just clearly define and understand what the Bible says about who we are as Christians in Christ. <clears throat> and we're using Romans 5 through 8 in this study through the summer, and you're going to find that there's really no better place in the Bible to discuss this topic and this idea than in Romans 5 through 8. And last week we talked about how Jesus changed our relationship with God forever. We saw that when we put our faith in Jesus as the one who lived perfectly in our place, died in our place, and rose again from the dead, that we are reconciled to God. We've been made right with God through Jesus. That we have peace with God. That we have access to God. That that we actually have access to the glory of God, of which the book of Romans says that we fell short of in our sin. And in Christ, we have access to God. He is our Father and our and our King. We, we who were once enemies of God have now been reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means for us in the real life is when real suffering goes on in this world, that sufferings don't demoralize us and destroy us. Sufferings remind us that this world is the worst we will ever have. Isn't that an amazing thought? As a child of God, as good as your world may feel to you, like, you know, today you're going to go to lunch with your family, your kids are going to be perfectly obedient at the table, and you're going to think, this is heaven on earth, right? As good as that moment is, that's the worst you will ever experience if you're in Christ. And real life suffering, if you're reconciled to God through Jesus, means that you you deal with suffering in a totally different way. Suffering reminds you that there's a day coming when all this Genesis 3 stuff that we see every day of our world is going to one day be restored and be made new because of the power of God. See, that means that, that because of Jesus, our relationship with God has changed forever. Now today we're going to continue this study of Romans 5, and we're going to see that Paul, the writer of Romans, is going to show us how this reconciliation with God is possible. And here's what we're going to see this morning. If you're new with us, you should have got an outline. On the outline, there'll be a big idea. And here's what we're going to see this morning. Jesus is superior to Adam. Jesus' work conquers Adam's work, and God's grace is greater than our sin. I'm going to read that again, and I want you to let this just settle in your soul. And you're going to see this when we read the text. Jesus is superior to Adam. Jesus' work conquers Adam's work, and God's grace is greater than our sin. So let's stand together. We're going to read Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. And we stand because this is God's word, and we believe that when the Apostle Paul went to pen these words... He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the reading of God's word, Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, 
But sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to, the ju- to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through, the, through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a full text of scripture with so many different connections to it to Christ. And I pray this morning that you would help us to see truly that Jesus' work does conquer Adam's, that Jesus is superior to Adam, and that your grace, it indeed is greater than all of our sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the verses that we just read are some of the most important verses in the Bible to help us understand how God relates to us as humans. So it is incredibly important when you're reading your Bible, you're going to pick out certain passages and chapters that you should re-spend a lot of time in, and this is one of them. So it's incredibly important that we understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about. So we're going to look at this text in three ways. We're going we're to define some terms that I believe will help us see what Paul is talking about in these verses. Then we're going to talk about our problem in Adam, and then we're going to talk about God's solution in Christ. Okay, that's going to be the three-point outline. So start with me by defining some terms here. Now, you're going to notice in this text a lot of repeated words and phrases. Now, this isn't new. If you're new with us, this isn't new for us. We're going to see repeated words and phrases a lot in the Bible, but this text is full of repeated words and phrases. You're going to notice the word through used six times. You're going to notice the phrase one man or one man's is used nine times. You're going to notice the word sin or trespass is used 15 times. And you're going to notice the words grace and righteousness are used eight times. Now, the reason these words and phrases are used so frequently is because Paul is comparing the work of Adam, the first man, 
with the work of Jesus, who the Bible calls the last Adam. And he's doing this to show us that Jesus' work, that Jesus is superior to Adam, that his work conquers Adam's work, and that God's grace is greater than our sin. And these words being repeatedly used is why we need to define some terms. And there's two terms that I want to define that you're going to notice are not in this particular text. But the reason we need to define these terms is because Paul is implying that we understand what these terms are and how they're utilized. So the first term I want to define is the term representative. Because the way God relates to us as humans is through a representative leader or what some call a representative head. And the best way to describe this is to think of a courtroom. Now, what you're going to notice is each of the examples I give have been derived from something already going on in the Godhead, meaning we as humans aren't very original. God is the original one, and God thought of these ideas way in advance. And so the first idea in the analogy is is a courtroom. In a courtroom, you have a judge. And in this particular courtroom of Romans chapter 5, you're going to notice that God is the judge. And in a courtroom, we would have a representation or what we'd call a lawyer. What our lawyer says is as if we said it. How they act in the courtroom is as if we acted that way in the courtroom. If the judge says that our lawyer is in contempt, it is as if we are in contempt. If the judge receives what our lawyer submits on our behalf, it is as if we have submitted that evidence or that document. That's how our our judge sees it. In God's courtroom, you have two representatives. You have Adam and you have Jesus. Now, another way to think of this representation model is to think about how this wonderful democracy we have has been created. Because we have what's called congressional representatives. And this isn't as clear cut as a lawyer because a lawyer is somebody we hire and we say, I want them to represent us. In our congressional democracy, what happens? We vote. The winner becomes our congressional representative, whether we voted for them or not. And whether or not we like this or not, how they vote represents how we voted in the district. How they act represents us in their acting as our representative. Now, you can say all day long, I don't like that. Too bad. That's the way the laws are made. It's the way it's set up. Your congressional representative represents you into Congress and into the halls of Congress. But let's take it a step farther, and let's talk about an even weirder example. Let's just hypothetically say that I hired a hitman to murder somebody. That'd be weird. Right? It'd be sad. You'd have a pastor that would be really, really weird, right? Okay? I hired a hitman to murder somebody, and then I decided that me and my lovely wife were going to skip out of the country, and we were going to go to our favorite place in Europe, the Swiss Alps. We're going to hide out in some cabin, and we're going to snow ski until the hit is taken off. While we're gone, this hitman murders somebody. And then the investigation ensues and finds out that we or me had hired a hitman to do this particular act. Well, guess what? I would be held charged with first degree murder by conspiracy because my representative did exactly what I asked them to carry out. The hitman carried out the murder representing me and I'm responsible for his actions. 
When you come to Romans 5, you are seeing very clearly how God looks and treats and relates with us as humans, and it's through representation. Adam on one side and Jesus on the other. They are compared and they are contrasted. That's why in the text you see repeated over and over again, one man referring to Adam and one man referring to Jesus. God deals with us as humans through our representatives, Adam or Jesus. Now, there's another term that we need to define, and you'll see this as we go. It's the term imputation. Now, that's not amputation, okay? Amputation where you cut something off, okay? Imputation means to accredit to or ascribe to a person in action that somebody else did that's accredited to you even though you are not present. So we could say it this way. The lawyer's actions were imputed to the client. Or you could say it this way. The words of your mother were ascribed to you. Even though you were never in the room, what your mother said was related as if you had said it. This is why you see in the text the word through. That word is spelled T-H-R-O-U-G-H. And I have to look at my notes because I cannot spell like, you know, just doing that. My wife knows this problem with me. She'll spell words when our kids are little. And I would say, you mean this word? And she'd say, it's supposed to be a secret. Why are you spelling it? Why are you singing it out loud? Because I cannot spell without looking at the word. So it's through T-H-R-O-U-G-H. You'll see that in the text. Any guys like that you can't spell just by nobody but me? Okay, I'm the only, okay, there's a few morons in the room. Great, it's awesome. Okay? That's why, that, that's a word, the word through is describing imputation or accrediting to us what Adam or Christ has done. Imputation is the work of our representatives and what they did as being accredited to us as if we did it even though we were not present when the actions occurred. So you're going to notice something. In this text, you have two imputations. Adam's sin accredited to all people as if they were present when it happened. Now, were any of you present when Adam sinned in the garden? None of you were, even though some of you said you're as old as dirt. You're not, right? You, none of us were there. Further, we're going to see Jesus' righteousness accredited to those who have been made right with God through faith in Jesus. As if we had done what Jesus had done. Now we need to define these terms in Romans 5 because Romans 5 is given to us to show us the similarities and the differences of our two representatives. Adam and Jesus, and to show what they did and how that was imputed to us or accredited to us by God. John Piper put it this way. The point of the text is to display the greatness of the work of Christ in the way he provides righteousness for sinners like you and me. And the way Paul displays the greatness of Christ's work is by lining it up beside the work of Adam, the first man, and pointing out the similarities and the differences. 
But we will miss the point entirely if we don't realize that the similarity and correspondence are meant to highlight the difference and the superiority of Christ and his work. R.C. Sproul put it like this. Romans 5 is giving us the contrast between our state of ruin brought about through Adam and our state of justification brought about by the obedience of another. The contrast here is between Adam and Christ, which has to do with justification. So we have to define those terms, and you'll see why. Now, I can already feel a little bit like, I don't like this idea of God declaring me a certain way on the basis of two representatives. Well, believe me, when we get to the end, you're going to be really glad he did. You can't have one or the other. You can't say, I don't want to be represented by Adam, but I want to be represented by Jesus. You can't have those two. It's one or the other. And you'll see why this is remarkably important. So let's look at the second point, which is our problem in Adam. You're going to see this very clearly in the text. So what Paul does is he says, okay, let's get to the courtroom and let's just look at your lawyer and your representative, Adam, and let's show you what your problem is in Adam. Notice verse 12. Through Adam, sin came into the world. Let's just take that issue first. Adam was the first man. When God created Adam, he gave him one command not to do. And we know from the Bible that Adam did it. Genesis 2, God told him, you shall not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. Genesis 3, Adam took the fruit from his wife and he ate the fruit. At that very moment, sin entered the world through Adam. It's the first moment that sin penetrated the earth through humanity. And then we're told in verse 12 that death came through Adam's sin. God told Adam that if he ate the tree of the forbidden tree, he would die. And that moment came. And Adam and his descendants would all face death. Now, what's interesting is when you're reading your Bibles, like I'm going through my Bible again, listening to it again. And as I'm going through it, you'll start hearing and reading. Adam died at 930 years old. Seth died at 912 years old. And you read these these things. And most of us go, wow, those guys lived to be a long time. That's what I do. I'm like, man, what would it be like to live 900 years? Crazy is that? The point the Bible's making is not that they lived a long life. It's that they died. Now, the reason that is important is because on and on and on, death has reigned. And we experience death ever since sin came into the world. In other words, when you read your Bible about death, what you're reading is death is the evidence that sin has entered the world through Adam and has been imputed to every member of his race. But verse 12 isn't done with us because verse 12 goes on to say this. Death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Now, do you see our representation in Adam? Do you see Adam's sin being imputed or accredited to us as if we had done it? 
Now again, the reality of sin, which Paul describes throughout the text as reigning from Adam to Moses, is the reality that all of us have sinned against God because all of us face death. And the reign of sin and the reign of death is talked about in verse 15, verse verse 17, and verse 21, because Paul is making a point. Death reveals the reality of sin in the human race. Listen, friends, if there were no sin, there would be no death. Because there's death, it reveals that sin was imputed to us through Adam, our representative leader. Meaning, God counts our sin against us as if we had done it in Adam, and death is the wages for our sin. But our problem with Adam in Adam isn't done. Because notice what he says in verse 16. Following the one trespass came judgment, which brought condemnation. That's in this moment we come face to face with the courtroom of the living God. Our representative Adam disobeyed God. And God counted Adam's sin against us because we sinned against God in Adam. Death reveals this to be true. And God pronounced a judgment on us and condemned us to eternal death. Physical death is just one part of God's judgment on sinners outside of Christ and sinners in Christ. He condemns us. Now, this is, a, this is going to be hard on those of us that, that think that God is after our self-esteem. Condemning means, this is what the phrase, the word means. It means expressing complete disapproval of our actions, attitude, character, and thoughts. In Adam, God expresses complete disapproval of our actions, attitude, character, and thoughts. So, listen, I, right after the 9-11 scene, somebody asked me, hey, so the, the firefighters that courageously went up in the tower and saved people, wasn't that something good that made them right with God? I mean, they did, they did courageous acts. And my response was, those acts do not save them. What they did was remarkably courageous, and we should applaud, and we should say thank you, but those acts did not save them before the living God. Rather, those acts are a mirror for a moment that man is indeed made in the image of God, and we still have a remnant of God in us. You're going to meet people that are in Adam, not in Christ, that are remarkably good people. They're compassionate. They're caring. But that compassion or that care does not save them. Nor does it bring about God's approval of them. Because in Adam, we've just seen the judgment is God expressing complete disapproval of our actions, attitude, character, and thoughts. But why? Why does God see it this way? Well, verse 9 tells us why. Because by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See, in Adam... We are rebellious people against God, and his righteous, holy character must judge us condemned, and that's all of us. Listen, we, we, don't, we don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's why we do what we do, right? Again, you, you've heard me say this before. You never have to teach your child to lie. You have to teach your child to tell the truth. Why? It reveals what's going on in the human heart. 
John Piper put it like this. So the problem with the human race is not most deeply that everybody does various sins. Those sins are real. They're huge and they're enough to condemn us. Paul is very concerned about them. But the deepest problem is that behind all of our depravity and all our guilt and all our sinning, there is a deep, mysterious connection or union with Adam whose sin became our sin and whose judgment became our judgment. So here's what this means. It means that in Adam, every human who has ever been born has sinned against God and declared a sinner in Adam. As if we had done it. We are condemned to eternal death and rightfully judged by the living God. If the living God said, hey, sin doesn't matter. My law doesn't matter. God would violate his character. He cannot do that. He cannot be holy and just and not hold us accountable for our actions. Our problem in Adam is our sin and our rebellion against God. And the God of the universe rightfully and perfectly judges us. His condemnation And his judgment is complete. It's perfect. This is why Paul wrote, and we studied this last week in Romans 3, that there is no one good. Not one. There's no one who seeks after God. It's why Paul said that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So our problem in Adam is this. We, we are declared before God to be sinners. We have been in, have Adam's sin imputed to us as if we had done it. We are rebellious people fighting against the living God. And we don't have anything in us that can make us right with God. In Adam, we have earned the righteous judgment hanging over us. And we, there is nothing we can do in ourselves to make us righteous enough before God to have a different judgment on us. We need a righteousness that is foreign to us. It doesn't come out of us, and it's something that comes outside of us. We are ruined in Adam. So here's a question for you. Would, would you would you pay for that representative in a courtroom? But thankfully, Adam's representation is not the point of Romans 5. And that's our last point today. God's answer in Christ. We got Adam's our problem in Adam. What's God's answer? Well, up against the ledger of Adam, we see the superabundant work of Jesus. Again, that's the point of this text. It's not to point us to Adam's sin. It's not to point us to the sin being imputed to us from Adam. It's to point us to something that the Savior is doing. It's to point out this grace of God on display. Now, we know that because of something in the text. Notice verse 14 with me. Verse 14 is kind of the key to the entire text. And notice what Paul wrote. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, death reigning from Adam to Moses is Paul's way of connecting with his Jewish readers and saying to them, hey, listen, sin was already in the world way before your champion Moses ever got the moral law from God up on that mountain when God gave him the Ten Commandments. And you know that sin was in the world by what? People died. Between Adam and Moses, people were still dying. 
There was a law that God gave to Adam, and when Adam disobeyed, God counted his sin to mankind way before the moral law was ever given to Moses. And even though humanity didn't sin in the same way as Adam, death still ruled the day. Here's basically what he's getting at. Think If you ever read your Bible, notice how quickly things digress. You go from Genesis chapter 3, eating a forbidden piece of fruit. I mean, are apples ever really that bad? To Genesis chapter 6, it says that man has sinned so evilly before the Lord that God is regretting he ever made them. And he determines in that day he's going to flood the entire earth and only except one family is going to be saved. You go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, and you want to talk about humanity defiling themselves, it didn't take them very long. And the, the and death revealed the reality of sin. But notice the end of verse 14, and you can't miss this. Adam was a type of the one to come. See, Adam was the first man. He came to represent man. But he's a type or a signpost of the one to come. If you can see it very clearly, here's what's happening in the court of God. Adam is sitting in his chair representing man. And Adam is saying, don't follow me, follow him. Don't sit at my table, sit at that table. Adam is a signpost of the one to come. And the one to come, according to Paul, was Jesus. Just as through one man came sin, death, judgment, and condemnation, notice what Paul said that God imputed to those who were made right with God through faith in Christ. And you'll see this very clearly in verses 18 and 19. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The word justification simply means that God no longer sees us in our sin, but he sees us in the righteousness of Christ. And life means not just eternal life, but actually new life that we can overcome the sin that has so long dominated us. But then he goes on to say in verse 19 that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, what Paul is saying is, through Jesus' obedience and righteousness, God made people right with him and gave us eternal life and brand new life to all who might live in him. Why? Because Jesus did this. Through Jesus' obedience, those who believe in Jesus are made righteous before God and by God. Instead of death and, and sin and judgment and condemnation, through Adam's disobedience, those who believe in Christ have been given righteousness, life, and acceptance before God because of Christ's obedience, because we're united with Christ. Now again, do you see the imputation? Christ obeyed and was righteous, and God gave us justification, life, and righteousness. God accredited Jesus' obedience and righteousness to people who trust in Jesus. This means, now just... Process this, God relates to those of us who trust in Jesus on the basis of Jesus' obedience and Jesus' righteousness, not Adam's sin. I'm going to say that again because I don't know if you got that, right? 
This means that God relates to us who trust in Jesus on the basis of Jesus' obedience and Jesus' righteousness, not on the basis of Adam's sin and condemnation. Amen. Yeah. As Bruce Wells said in the first service, as he yelled, thank God. I said, thank you, Bruce. You got it. And we always knew you got it, right? Now, to this point, really... When you get this, you understand it, you're seeing it, that we can just say, can we just kind of go to communion now and just worship and just thank God for this amazing work? But like Bob Barker would say, wait, there's more. There's more. Because because there's more because of the differences and the superiority of what Christ has done over and above what Adam has done. See, we can see the similarities in, in Adam and Christ, right? Both are representatives before God. Both, both are men who represent us before God. And God has accredited to us what both of them did. Adam's sin accredited to us. Christ's righteousness accredited to us as we trust in him. But notice that there's a difference. Notice verse 15 with me. Paul writes, the free gift is not like the trespass. Now, this is the first time in this text that Paul mentions the free gift. Now, what's intriguing is, in the next two verses, 15 and 16, Paul will use that phrase, free gift, he will use it five times. Paul is driving a point home. And he even tells us what the free gift is. He says, the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, and the free gift that brought justification or made us right with God. And he says, it is the free gift of righteousness. Now listen to this. The free gift of God, the free gift is God accrediting to us the righteousness of Jesus by God's grace, which makes us right with God. Remember, we needed a righteousness outside of us that we could not produce. And what did God do in Christ? The free gift is God accrediting to us the righteousness of Jesus by God's grace, which makes us right with God. So one significant difference between Adam and Christ's work is this. In Adam... We earned our judgment. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We earned the judgment leading to condemnation. We earned the judgment of God saying, I do not approve of your actions, attitude, character, and your thoughts. But in Christ, God gives us a free gift of righteousness which leads to justification by his grace. Friends, you understand, don't you, that grace is not something you can earn. Nor can we ever earn that grace. The act of God imputing Christ's righteousness to us, making us right with him, and giving us eternal life and new life is solely an act of God's grace. That's a major difference. So we can say, listen, I do not like this representation model because I don't like his Adam's sin being imputed to me. Okay, here's a question. Do you like Jesus' righteousness being imputed to you by the grace of God? And the answer is, yeah, I do. I sure do. Well, you can't have one or the other. 
That's a major difference. The act of grace giving us the righteousness of Jesus. Now, there's another significant difference that I want you to notice in the text, and it's the superabounding nature of God's grace through Christ over our sin and over death. When you read the text, sin and death are like all-encompassing and all-powerful. I mean, uh, I said it in the earlier service, it's like the game Whack-A-Mole. You guys know that game where you have that little mallet and the little moles pop up and you have to bang them, you know? And, and it's like every time you read the text, sin pops up, bam! And it's like there's this thing that pops up, all, and you got sin and death, like they're reigning everywhere. And every time you see that, you're going to notice something. The grace of God is like the mallet, bam, just hammering it down every time. You're going to see this everywhere. Sin and death seem to reign over everything, and they reign on everything. But notice how Paul talks about death's reign in the text. Notice the much more statements. Verse 15, but the grace of God is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The word abounded means super abounded. Or verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, see the whack-a-mole popping up through that one man, much more, take the mallet out, bam, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 20 and 21, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that sin, as sin reigned in death, see the whack-a-mole popping up, grace also must reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All Paul's getting at is, you you know what the law does? The law reveals what sin is. That's all it does. And what sin is so, so crazy And so evil that it takes something that is good from God, the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And sin rises up within the human heart so evilly that what does it want to do? It wants to do the very thing God has said not to do. And what Paul says in this verse, in these verses, God's grace is so powerful That when your evil nature rises up to say, go do what God has said not to do, the grace of God super abounds over your sin. All the law can do is condemn us and show us what sin is. The law said that sin, it's bad and it's judged. But listen, but God's grace super abounds where sin tries to increase. And where sin increased, notice what Paul says, grace abounded all the more. So you're going to notice every one of the much more statements are all connected with the grace of God. God's grace declares us right with God, and he declares that we're no longer under the reign of sin and death because God's grace superabounds over sin and death, and God's grace has given us the free gift of righteousness of Jesus so that we can be declared right before God. Now you got to remember, chapter 5 began how last week? Since we have been justified by faith. And now we're ending... With Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, making us right with God through the grace of God. See, yes, in Adam, yes, in Adam, we're all sinners. 
destined for physical death, judged by God and condemned to eternal death because we disobeyed God. But since we have been justified in Christ, God accredits to our account the righteousness of Jesus. And we have been granted eternal life and brand new life and the grace of God super abounds over sin and death and we are made right with God forever. God's super abounding grace is always, always greater than your sin. Always. There is more grace in Christ, God's work in Christ than there is sin in your heart. That's amazing news. See, do you, do, you see, do you see the big idea? Jesus is superior to Adam. Jesus' work conquers Adam's work. God's grace is greater than our sin. So let, let's go back to the courtroom. You have God as the judge. You have two representatives. You have Adam, who is led to sin, death, judgment, and condemnation. The other is Jesus, who has led to righteousness, eternal life, being made right with God by the grace of God. Here's the question. Is, Is there any more obvious choice of which one you should want to represent you? See, becoming a Christian is simply in the court of law, seated behind Adam, raising your hand for a point of order, saying, I'd like, I'd like to request a change in representation. And then getting up and moving to the table that is represented by Christ. It is simply acknowledging before the God of the universe, the judge of all the universe, that it won't work in Adam. And you, you know where you're headed with Adam. But you want to be, be seen and understood and treated by God on the basis of what Christ has done for you. And what you have made the decision to have Jesus represent you. Listen clearly. Your status before God changes forever. Changes forever. So if you're not a Christian and you, you have realized, oh my word, I've been seated in this table with Adam representing me thinking this is true life. And this morning I realized I need the righteousness of another. Then we would tell you, listen, tell that to God. Confess your sin to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Turn to him. Trust him. But listen, if you're a Christian and you say, yeah, I'm I'm seated at Christ's table. Here's what I'd ask you. Is that is that how you relate with God on the basis of Christ's righteousness and obedience? Or is it for you, you have your list, you know, you, you read your Bible, you pray, you share the gospel, and you do certain little things. And as you get to the end of the day, you roll up your little scroll and you say, see there, I'm right with God. I can now go to sleep at night. Do you see what you've just done? You have related your justification and God's happiness with you and God's God's relationship with you on the basis of what you have done, not on what Christ has done. Or better yet, when you sin against God, do you run to God, as First John would say, and confess your sin to him, believing that he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin and cleanse you from unrighteousness and run to God? Or do you hide in shame going, oh, dear God, you see me once again in my sin when we've just discussed he no longer treats us on the basis of our disobedience, 
but on the basis of Christ. See, what this should do to your heart is when you sin against the living God is you're running to him, not running away from him. Or better yet, do you, as a Christian, do you think that God relates to you truly and solely on the finished work of Christ? Or do you think that God is somehow, like, conniving things, and in reality, he's a little bit mildly displeasured with you? And when you show up at the throne room to go, God, I'd like to have a little wisdom for the situation, that God is somehow going, it's you again? Good grief, why are we here? Haven't we gone over this a thousand times? When God in reality relates to us in a remarkable way, he no longer counts our sin against us because he has counted Christ's righteousness to us. He no longer condemns us. He accepts us in the beloved. We are no longer destined for eternal death and slaves to our sin. We are destined for eternal life and have been given the superabounding grace of God, which overruns and conquers all of our sin. All because, all because of one man. All because of our representative Jesus. Do you see why there's need to worship? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for treating us in ways that we do not deserve. Thank you for the grace of God giving us the free gift of Christ's righteousness so that we can be made right with you. Thank you for our perfect representative, Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for imputing his righteousness to us by your grace. And this morning, Lord, I pray, I pray for my friends who are here that don't know Jesus. That have realized I've, I've been in Adam. I pray that they would return to Christ. They would turn their hearts to Jesus. That you would cause them to confess their need to you and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I pray for my Christian friends who, Lord, are living by a moralistic legal law that thinks that, that you are somehow relating to them on the basis of their good work or their bad work. And when bad things hit, they immediately think that you are displeased with them. And when good things hit, they immediately think you're happy with them. And I pray, oh God, that you would help us to relate to you on the basis of Christ and his righteousness, and that, Lord, we would see that we relate with you on the basis of Christ's righteousness and your grace. Father, where there is condemnation in the heart, I pray that you'd free the Christian. Where there's true conviction of sin, I pray that they would run to you, their father. And I pray that you would teach each of us to rest in the finished work of Christ in our justification. 
because it is solely an act of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.